Welcome to the podcast, Stacey. Hi. <laughs> thanks, so, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for asking me. Uh, before I get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Comox, Mokwa, Kalehus, and Klaaman First Nations, part of the larger Coast Salish people of kind of on the west coast of Turtle Island. Uh, yeah, grateful to be here. Um, so yeah, so Stacy, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where should I start? <laughs> so I am an immigrant to the United States of America. I came to this beautiful country after a hurricane, one of the worst hurricanes on my island. I'm from the island, again, the island of Jamaica. So mm. 1989, there was Hurricane mm. Gilbert on the mm. island. And my family and I decided to migrate after that hurricane season. And so coming in 89, coming in 10th grade to this country was a culture shock. Wow. To say that. Yeah. Um, um, I attended school in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So, so hello to anyone from Bridgeport, Connecticut, who's might be listening to this. And then I was fortunate enough to attend college in Western Massachusetts at Amherst College. Mm. And uh, I remembered, so shout out to my guidance counselor who brought me on my first college tour because my family had no money. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I went to Amherst College, fell in love, had no idea how hard it was to get in and mm. um, majored in psychology, um, dabbled in some black um, studies courses, um, but really wanted to be an educator in that space. Fell in love with issues of equity and diversity as a college student mm. because I realized the great divide between Black Americans and Caribbean Americans in that space. And mm. I didn't understand what was going on. And I, and so, you know, like there was the Black Student Union, but Caribbean students didn't really have an identity um, in that space. And so then there was the Caribbean Student Association. But then the Caribbean is a really large place. And so how do you bring together all the identities of the Caribbean in that space? And then, you know, ended up dating someone who was Asian and so also participating in that space. Mm. Um, and so got a crash course in um, diversity, inclusion way back when. Yeah. And, and um, went to graduate school. And Western Mass, love, love Western Mass, love the pace of Western Mass. People are so nice. Mm. Um, went to UMass Amherst. And um, again, my love for equity issues really followed me there in, in terms of, I used to joke to students that in every class that I taught, took in every paper that I wrote, there was some diversity or equity focus. My poor professors, they probably had no idea what to do with me. Mm. And, and for for my internship, you know, I was very happy to be placed in New Orleans, where I learned a lot about um, Black American culture and Southern Black American culture. Mm. And that was that was also really helpful for me. And so that's sort of my educational trajectory. And I'm trained as a school psychologist, um, primarily as a systems consultant. That's my identity as a practitioner scholar. Mm. And again, as a systems consultant, again, you know, equity and diversion and diversity and inclusion are just a part of my DNA. You know, it's not something that I do, it's something that I am. So mm. I hope I answered that question. I, and I'm a lifelong learner. Yeah. I just love learning. 
Did did so when you left in '89? Were you just leaving because you didn't want to go through another hurricane? Is that sort of the thing, or why why did you get out? No, I mean like every immigrant, you hear about the Great American Dream, right? Mm. And my my mom felt that she would be able to take care of her family better if she was able to work in the United States, right? So that's the remittance that most immigrants, um, you know, mm. they send remittance home to their home country to right. be able to of her family. So she believed that she could take care of her family there. She also believed that um, her children would have more opportunities in the United States. Mm. And so my family were professional family in Jamaica. My mom's a banker. My dad's an architect. My dad worked wow. for the, the government. My, um, so, you know, I, I went to private schools most of my life. So, you know, but, but you still have this outlook that life is going to be better if we come to the United States or there'd be additional opportunities. And mm -hmm. in some ways she was right. You know, I had opportunities afforded to me in the U.S. that was not afforded to my friends who stayed on the island. Mm -hmm. If I stayed on the island, I probably would not have been a professor. I probably would not have had a PhD. I probably would have gotten married earlier. A lot of my friends got married earlier. Mm -hmm. um, it would just have been very different. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, when we think about perceptions that people have of the island, when I first came to the United States, I was put, I was actually put back a grade because I was coming from a third world country or a developing country and folks wow. were listening, can't see my air, my air quotes. Yeah. And so, you know, and so again, when we talk about diversity and so I was put back in, in ninth grade and when I first came to this country, the first person I interacted with was an African-American um, principal who looked at my transcript and had me repeat the ninth grade. And she also put me in low performing class in high schools. And in all honesty, if I had stayed there, then I would not have made it out because mm. uh, typically the students who are placed in those classes don't really go to college. Right. So there's some assumptions and bias built in there. And within the first week in those classes, um, there was a, uh, a, a teacher, Mr. Walsh, tall, skinny, white guy, who asked me, what am I doing in this class? He was mm. like, you don't belong in this class. And so Mr. Walsh took me to Dick Shepard, who was the guidance counselor, um, who looked at the same transcript um, that she looked at. And Dick Shepard said, I don't know why you're in the ninth grade. You should be in the 10th grade. And Dick, Dick Shepard put me in the 10th grade and he put me in level B. So I don't know if many people know that, you know, um, education in the United States is somewhat tracked, especially if you're going to schools in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And so Dick Shepard put me in 10th grade and put me in level B. And so level B students are tend to attract into going into the military services, right? So that's the purpose of that. If we're keeping it real and mm -hmm. in, 10th grade in level B, I met Mr. Levesque, white dude, who said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. And so he said, Mr. Levesque said, you don't belong here. And Mr. Levesque said, you belong in the college prep program. So he match, marches mm. me up to magnet program. And at that time in Bridgeport, Connecticut, the magnet program was a lottery school. Like you had to be in the lottery to get in. Mr. Carsage looks at the same transcript that everybody's looking at. And Mr. Carsage said, um, yeah, 
you don't belong there, you belong here. And so in the span of oh a my month, gosh. went from ninth grade to 10th grade <laughs> to the magnet program. And um, talk about luck of the draw or whatever it was. And I said to myself, now I'm going to have to work. And um, and to this day, you know, Mr. Carstage holds a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. And I kept in touch with him all through college and all through graduate school. And in um, the magnet program, I met Mr. Moran, who became my guidance counselor, who was Italian guy, who was the first person to give me my introduction to the college experience in the United States. He chose two students to attend a college program at Fearful University. I have no idea why he chose me, but God Mm. is good all the time. (laughs) And my family had, well, you know, as immigrants, we were truly um, starting over. And, you know, I didn't have the experience of going on college tours. And Mr. Moran said, I have a college that would be perfect for you. And he took me on my college tour to Amherst College. And um, that's how I found out about Amherst. Amherst was my reach school because you got into, I got into my safety school because I was in the top 10% in my school. Um, But Amherst was a reach school and I got into my reach school. And so I just listed all the people (laughs) who literally created the path for this little mm-hmm. black and opened opportunities and continued to see something in me that I probably did not see in myself. But I also have to give, I have to give a shout out to my earlier educational experiences um, because my high school in Jamaica Hampton, Hampton school in Malvern mountain really prepared me for the educational system here. So, so we moved for a better life and for, opportunities. Wow. <laughs> well, it's just, there's, I mean, that's great. I'm, I'm glad it worked out for you, but I mean, talk about, you know, spiritual higher, higher calling intervention here. Cause there's just, you couldn't make that up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Um, no, you can't you know, make that up. That's and, for sure. And, and and there's so many sort of kind of inconsistencies with sort of maybe what I've been learning to be kind of maybe a more typical black experience. Um, you know, first off, the idea that and I know I'm, I'm learning lots about sort of internalized racism and all that sort of thing. But that that it started with the black principle putting you backwards. And then all these white folks pushing you forward. Like none of that's even normal either, right? You know? None of that is normal. But what's even more important, if you think about it, there are mm. not a lot of males in education. Mm. And the the individuals who who created opportunities for me in my earlier years have all been white males, right? Mm. So, you know, um, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, that that principal was probably, you know, she's never heard of my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, she, people probably have biases of individuals who are coming from, mm-hmm. um, developing worlds, especially yep. if you haven't really been there. So, you know, I'm going to just chop that up to biases. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when she put. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is hurricane puts me in a class thinking that's probably all that I was capable of doing. And then those teachers 
saw me and were like, something is off. Yeah. Like, and let me tell you though, Ben, like I was, I was like, American schools are really easy, not realizing that there was tracking, right? And I was like, I have to do nothing. I was like, and then my mom was like, I didn't take you to America for you to become, you know, less than. And I was like, woman, be quiet. Like, I'm kind of liking this easy street. And then yeah. <laughs> my teachers are like, no, you don't belong here. Right. And I so if I think about that experience then as a faculty member, mm. you know, and in terms of my mentorship, when I mentor students, my job is to always identify opportunities for them to leverage their skill sets, right? And I and I even mm. do it for in my current position, I create opportunities for my team where I leverage their skill sets. So, you know, and I give them visibility so that they're able to grow, right? And mm. so additional doors can be opened for them mm. because that's what was done for me. And yeah. so those teachers could have seen me and have done nothing and I would not be in front of you. Right. So mm -hmm. it's about, and if we think about equity, you know, how do we level the playing field for everyone so that they can access the resources that they need to yep. actually come to be their full potential. Right. And, you know, whenever I tell the story, the reason why I'm able to remember their names is because they had a huge impact on my life. And I was one of those kids that when I went off to college, I would go home every year and see my principal and see my guidance counselors and knock on the doors on the teachers because they were my original cheerleaders. And I yeah. want to be cheerleaders for others. Oh, that's cool. I, I got to wonder that this principal, maybe what didn't was was just going on the bias of the third world country, also air quotes, um, um, and didn't actually look at a transcript because I, I, I'm trying to think what she saw in the transcript that these folks didn't see. Because it must have been it clearly you you clearly had really good grades. I mean, that's obviously what they saw. Um, yeah, and, and so that's why they thought you should, you know, you be be where you are um yeah yeah interesting that's a good question though right and, and yeah. when you're an immigrant you don't really challenge the system right you're just mm -hmm. like uh and you don't know why you don't know if you could even challenge the system mm -hmm. so i and again this is hindsight right i'm just assuming that she just thought that again third world didn't know the high school mm -hmm. and just Right. Not knowing that my high school was one of the most difficult high schools to get into mm. on the island, mm -hmm. not like not knowing that this the selectivity of that, like she she had no way of knowing that. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know, you know, Dick Shepard, who is the guidance counselor, he moved me, but he moved me um, on the recommendation of a teacher who had actually interacted with me. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're interacting with me. You're hearing the way that I speak. You're hearing the way that I'm connecting to what it is that you are discussing in class and no one mm -hmm. else is making that connection. As a teacher, you you know when, you know, something is not right here. And so, you know, I'm grateful for Walsh for bringing me to Shepard to be able mm. to say, you know, she's in the wrong place. But even Shepard didn't even put me in the college prep program. You know, he just mm. bumped me to yep. 10th grade. And then Mr. Levesque, who was teaching both in the college prep program. So in, in Bridgeport, Central High School has a magnet program and a regular program, right? And they're all in the same building with magnet mm. being on the, the second floor. And Levesque taught in both, right? So mm. if you think about Levesque, 
Walsh didn't. Walsh was just strictly regular central. Mm. Levesque interacts with college prep students, and he also interacts with um, students who were in the regular central, right? So here is it that he's meeting me in the regular central, and in his, in his mind, he's like, wait, but she's operating like my college prep students. Mm. Like, like, we need to make sure that she's in this program. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think about divine intervention, it's because to get into that program, it's lottery. And we, like, <laughs> like, and the fact that I got into that program through the back door, like most people don't even know that back door existed. Mm -hmm. And, and let me just tell you, Mr. Carsage was this tall, like larger lumberjack, like principal in the magnet program. And people were afraid of him. <laughs> And little old me, when Levesque brought me upstairs to yeah. Carsage, and, you know, and if Carsage, let's think about this. If he was truly a stickler for the rules, he could have said no. He, like, no, there, there, there are these rules in process, right? Mm -hmm. But here comes one of his teachers. And, and I have to say that Mr. Levesque probably had some sort of, like, let's call it social capital, right? Right? Mm. Like. He must have been really well liked and respected by this principal to then say, I think she should be here. And for then principal to say, OK, mm -hmm. like there are all these nuances yeah. that are operating. Right. And then for me then to be assigned to George Moran, who had 500 students on his caseload. Let's think about that. Why was it that George like. If we think about guidance counselors, they all don't have an intimate relationship with their 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 students. And when I say that, like when I say intimate, I mean like know their students, like know like do more than just say these are the classes that you take. Like mm. like so, I have to really think about that. And so mm. here is that I'm assigned to Mr. Moran. I probably look like a kid that just was just I'm going to say off the boat, but I know that's probably not the best analogy in this space. But like just fresh eye, don't know anything. And for whatever reason, this man decided to take me under his wings. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. For mm -hmm. whatever reasons, he has two spots to pick two students from his list of 500 to go to a college prep program. And I'm still an immigrant. Like my people, like I'm not yet um, a resident alien, right? But he picked two students and I was one of those students. And then in my senior year, when I thought I was going to go into the armed forces, right? I'm, I'm, I was about to take the army beta test and all of that test because I I thought that was the only avenue for me. My parents don't have no money. Mm. Like, how am I going to go to school? How are they going to pay for school? Mr. Moran was like, I needed to apply for all of these scholarships. And when I tell you, Ben, I applied for probably over 100 scholarships, probably got 10. But he was like, apply, apply, apply. And he was like, and I'm going to take you on your college tour. Who does that? Mm -hmm. Who does that? Like, and so, and then not knowing where he was taking me, like if Mr. Moran told me where he was taking me, I would not have gone. I would have been like, I can't go there. Like, <laughs> my parents ain't got that money, number one. Number two, they're one of the most selective liberal arts college in the country. No. <laughs> like, but he didn't say that. All yeah. he said was, Stays, knowing your personality, he said, I know that you like small, intimate classes. Um, you will thrive well in an environment where your professors are invested in you, getting to know you. 
because I'm ready to go off to Yukon, which is like really big, right? Mm. And so I go up to to Amherst. I had an amazing experience on campus. I actually felt at home, right? And so when I talk about home, there was community, there was camaraderie. And at Amherst at that time, you never know who had money on, until parents weekend when you see the cars that parents drive up. But typically, you didn't know who had old money and who had um, new money. And mm. so you actually felt safe within that environment. Your professors, mm. made, you felt safe. You were, you were, um, your professors wow. either took you out to dinner or you were at their houses for dinner. Like, you got to know your professors, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thrived within that environment. Now, why did God put Moran in my life? To, like, I have no idea. So when I got into that space, you best believe that every opportunity that I had to go back and give back or to go back and say, thank you, I did that. Mm. And, you know, Mr. Moran has now retired. He's he's struggling in some areas of his life. Mm. And in, so sometimes Mr. Moran will say certain things and I'm like, you know, Mr. Moran has biases. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, if Mr. Moran had those biases, like, why did he help me? Like, mm. you know, so th these are some conversations yeah. that we've had over the years now that he's retired. But I'm I'm truly grateful um, for these individuals, right? Mm. And and recognizing that my experience is not is not the norm, mm -hmm. right? Is not the norm, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm I'm grateful for the the their presence and the opportunities that they facilitated. And to be very honest with you, Ben, like years later, I graduated. I had my doctorate. Um, I ran into someone at um, Sacred Heart University, mm. and I was like, "Oh, I want to teach, right?" And I and I didn't have that teaching experience, and someone said talked to Cursage and Cursage was my old principal. Mm. And so I called him. I just called Cursage just to talk to him as because he was building a house in South Carolina. Mm. And I was like, oh, I heard you upgrade. You know, I'm just talking to him. And then he goes, Cursage, he goes, Stace, how can I help you in your career? And I'm thinking, you can't really help me. Like I'm literally just calling to say hello. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, tell me what do you want to do with your life? And he goes, I said, well, I want to teach, but like, I don't have any in for teaching. And he's like, oh, I know people at Sacred Heart. I'm going to give him a call and I'm going to give him a call. And then and mm. then I'm going to tell you to call this lady and tell her that I sent you. And wow. I did that. And I got my first teaching gig because of my high school principal. Like, I know. I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and and my guess is that your kind of career is now sort of focused on making it the norm. Right. Oh, I, I won't, we're going to get into that soon. I, I mean, it sounds like a lot of this is just about perspective and some of these folks just had you know, perspectives and others in that. I mean, it's, you know, this one guy being in the, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the level B in the, in the other, in the, in the you know, and then in the college prep at the same time, he's got perspective. He can, he can see the difference between A and B and, 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 and what's supposed to be there where the other person's just in the regular class. He doesn't know about college prep. So he can't see what, you know, those students are like and think about that. Um, but it also means, you know, being really good at, observing and paying attention and kind of noticing those things 
But something that just keeps sitting with me here is is this is is this this transcript, you know, <laughs> and this transcript where you know the grades were obviously good on the transcript, but it it, it this just remind it, this reminds me of 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 uh, this huge problem we have in in North America around accepting credentials from folks that aren't from here. Right. So, you know, a doctor comes over from Africa and, uh, you know, has to be a, you know, a, a, you know, a care aide because mm -hmm. their MD isn't required, isn't recognized here. And yet, you know, they've had medical training and all this sort of thing and their grades are really high. But someone but the bias is you look at those grades and go. They're high for Jamaica, you know, they're high for Africa, they're high for wherever. Um, but they're not hot. They, this person, there's no way this person could get those same grades here. That's just not possible. Mm -hmm. and, and that bias is just sort of built right in. And so right away, so you just, you just go, no, you know, I, I don't care if you, you could have had a hundred percent on uh, like, you know, the perfect score on everything. And, and someone would have said, yeah, but here that, but here that'd just be a 75% because, because, because you're, you're not from here. And yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, because we're, we're, we're dealing right now, I'm sure everyone is, but we're in, in, in British Columbia, where I live, we have a, we're dealing with a massive doctor shortage. Like there's so many people without family physicians, so right. many people. Um, and, and yet there's all of these physicians that want to come move here and, and be physicians, but they're all working, you know, they're, they're, they're literally frontline staff in like group homes now. Like I remember I worked with a, I worked in my in my group home that I managed for a while with a wonderful woman from India who was a an emergency room uh an ER nurse like talk about you know training experience and whatnot and you know she she the, the highest paying job she'd get was about 15 bucks an hour um because no one would recognize the credentials and you'd have to and they'd have to pay to go back to school and all those sorts of things to sort of make it up so you know and that that's really what you know would have happened to you or or you like you said you would have went to the military because that seems to be sort of the only option for a lot of folks in order to pay for stuff so i'm i'm, I'm happy for you but it's also you know it's still it's really sad but also but i but again I'm glad folks like yourself have had this experience and are now doing the work to sort of maybe remove those experiences for others. So. Right. Well, can I follow up with that a moment? I think in this country, I think in the United States, we believe that the, the urging of knowledge and information like begins with us and, and with, ends with us. Right. Yeah. So there's this, that, and what's really interesting, there's this perception that we can train anyone and they can go anywhere in the world and work, but we don't, there isn't this right. reciprocity that we will take anyone, right? And so yeah. for many years, I drank the Kool-Aid that, you know, we knew everything, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the system within our, within our culture. But when you start traveling outside of this country and you start actually collaborating with scholars across the world, you realize at some point that, you know, like knowledge development has been like parallel, you know, and you realize that we would get to the solutions a lot quicker if there was this like pollination between um, nations, right, and cultures. And in some university, um, there has been a push to really um, 
facilitate um, cross-national like collaboration where different countries are collaborating and sharing information. Yeah. But I think I wrote about this once that that cross um, collaboration also the United States dominates in that right in the sense that if we if we end up publishing in their journals in terms of our tenure that that publication is not counted right mm. and if they publish in our journals it's like a twofer for them, right? So again, there's this still like this power dynamic in mm-hmm. that collaborative relationship. And so it's it's just a bias that's built in to this country, right? And so, you know, years ago, what most people don't know is that the British educational system is actually more demanding than the American public school system, right? Mm. So Jamaica a couple of years ago was trying to change from the British system to model the American system. And people who are knowledgeable about both was like, that that may not necessarily be in your best interest because if you're getting your formative education in Jamaica and then transitioning to the United States, you're likely to be set up for um, success, right? And there's a bias there. So let me just stop for Mm -hmm. a moment. I'm primarily talking about like your private school education, right? a couple of years ago, the Jamaican government was, um, they were cited for their poor performance of their government schools, and they were um, encouraged to upgrade their government schools so that they could be as competitive as the, the private schools. So I just wanted to make that. Mm-hmm. And the schools in Jamaica are primarily run by like religious organizations, right? So mm-hmm. I just wanted to share that with me. But those are primarily built on the colonized systems of education, which is very much rooted in the British educational system, which is very much rooted in comprehensive edu- examination, which is the CXC and the GCEs and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. In, in those systems, like years ago, when you know when we were collaborating with an American university, the the University of the West Indies told the American entity that stated. The students that go to the University of the West Indies are the creme de la creme of the society. Mm. And the reason for that is not all folks have access to tertiary education on the island. Sure. And the and you have to pass several assessments that I think is so hard in order to be in that system, right? Mm. Which is very different from the American system. And one of the reasons why they were stating that then when those individuals come to a system that like the United States. They they tend to do better because of the hoops that they have to jump through <laughs> to matriculate right. in that system. And you asked me earlier why I migrated. I was like, I did not want to take the CXCs, <laughs> not knowing that I was then coming to take the SATs. Like you could never mm. get a formative assessment. Right. But um, but that's the mentality of our American like educational system that we are the best system in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me to travel to realize that that may not always be the case. And also within our country, educational, um, access to education is different, right? In the sense that, you know, the 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 access in urban areas might be very different than the access in suburban areas based on how education is funded in this country. And also because I've also taught in private schools and have seen the resources that are available to those students, those students have access to things that kids in poor urban areas don't like mm. kids in 
urban areas are using outdated books. And so mm. even if you think in my own, like in the same, same school, yep. there are two levels of expectations, two levels of um, access to resources that are in the same school. Wow. And the differences between those access was a lottery system, right? Um, knowing that this was one of the best schools in town, the kids wanted to get into schools. And so there was a lottery system. And that's typically what we do with our public schools in our country. Like we don't have enough like robust educational experiences. And so the seats are very limited. And mm. so it's the it's the luck of the draw, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's something else you said early, early on that, that's just been sitting in my head around your folks. Uh, you know, and and wanting to come here for the, for the American dream, um, and you know, from some of the conversations I've had recently, you know, it, it, I've I've heard from a lot of folks that the American dream is is you know is a bit of propaganda um and 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 a bit of hooey because it's you know it's sort of it, it's the american dream is is a is a capitalist dream right you know i mean you can go and you can you know dig deep and start making money and you know create a business for yourself or whatever and you know and and you know and get rich is sort of is essentially you know the american dream and 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 uh and, and kind of go that route but that doesn't seem to be sort of, you know, the dominant perspective in the world. Um, you know, like most folks, you know, I'm learning more and more about sort of, you know, collectivist societies versus individual capitalist societies and how really the global majority, as it were, which for, you know, is basically, you know, all these minority groups, but everywhere else in the world are actually the majority. Um, um, and, and, you know, we white folks are the minority. I mean, if you even looking at the map, I mean, really we're, we're Eurocentered. We're, we're, we're in this little section up here and everybody else is everywhere else. Um, and, and, and so this, I don't know if there's a question here, but just this whole idea of this whole this sort of kind of idea that folks can come from these, you know, collectivist societies for this American dream, which is not collectivist. Um, um, and, and, and is actually, you know, especially when you talk to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of folks that are, you know, Native American or Indigenous, you know, um, you know, the, this is the American dreams is essentially what's ruined the land here and ruined the society here. Um, so it's just interesting that it's, it's, it, it, it was the American dream that drew folks there. And I get it because, you know, I mean, I think in some ways, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of these countries, particularly in the Caribbean, you know, are all formerly or currently colonized islands. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're also sort of, you know, in this, you know, in this sort of uh, propaganda kind of, in, you know, in, in, entrenched world. And so it's, 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 yeah. So it's just, it's interesting to sort of, you kind of came over, on this American dream sort of premise. I mean, you, you, you probably didn't have it so much in grade 10, but, um, um, uh, but maybe you did. I'm sure you heard the stories. Um, and you know, yeah. America, so, yeah. America exports its, um, its lifestyle through its media. Right. And right. growing up as in the Caribbean, you consume that, um, through the, 
the the shows right. you watch you you see high school kids in the US already driving cars um right. you see the sense of abundance there's also this culture of people coming to work in the United States as mm-hmm. um housekeepers or nannies mm-hmm. and being able to send money home to support their families to build their homes right so mm-hmm. there's that culture um you had people it, back in the day it was a lot easier to go to England than it was to go to the United States but the idea was to go overseas to work mm-hmm. you know when you went overseas to work that there was going to be sacrifices the 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 goal of being overseas was not to live extravagantly because one day you would be going home right and so mm-hmm. Jamaicans would say yabanya belly um you 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 do what it is that you needed to do to make the money that you needed to make to support your family at home so you weren't mm-hmm. only taking care of your family here and so you might have been living with a relative here right to to make ends meet and so and so you know that so you know so <laughs> Thinking about like, oh my God. So that's the life, right? That's the life that you're coming to. Yeah. And um, or the light, the and so as a kid, you also get this image in your head that the streets are paved with milk and honey and gold. Don't ask me where that image come from, but that's that image has to come from someplace. So as a kid, when I came here and I didn't see any gold, I was like, oh my God, I've been hoodwinked. Or <laughs> I mean, milk and honey, like, like, I, I know it seems like so foreign right now, but I didn't see that. Like no one talked about gold. No one talked about (laughs) the, the, the cultural differences. Like, I mean, the good thing is that I spoke the language, so there wasn't like a language barrier, Mm. but you know, my accent was probably really thick back then. No one talked about the fact that like, you know, I got teased for wearing clothes from Goodwill, you know, and, you know, and back then I didn't know what Goodwill was. I was like, Mm. Oh, I'm really nice clothes and then yeah. like your parents have enough money so now you can buy stuff from jc pennies but then mm. your team wearing pennies and so <laughs> you know as a family you're sticking together and so my mom would say you know we lived in a one-bedroom house mm. when i was in college and um my mom would say you know remember that this is not where you're coming from mm. and and she would always remind us of that. She's like, this is where we are now and we will likely not always stay here. And she was right. And I remembered in college when one of my professors, remember I told you I'm close to my professors, one of my professors drove me home and I made her park a block away from that one bedroom apartment and Mm. um, he drove away and I walked to that one bedroom apartment and the next um, time I was at school in her office, she called me into her office and she said, I don't want you to be ever ashamed of where you come from. And then Mm. she told me the story about her, her, how did her dad build her family's home um, by himself? Mm. And, you know, and he was really proud of that home and she was really proud of that home. So I should never be afraid of, um, ashamed of where I'm coming from. So Mm. the next she took me home, she stopped right outside that one bedroom apartment. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the literature is the difference between transitional poverty and generational poverty. Mm-hmm. And so I experienced poverty in this country, but it was transitional, right? Um, because our family was not um, low income living in the island. And, you know, being here for an extended period of time, when I had an opportunity to go home, I went home, but I went home to individuals 
to situations that were completely different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I remembered I used to clean house in Westport, Connecticut, and I remembered being treated not nicely. And I was thinking to myself, but I'm smart. Like, like, why are you talking to me like this? <sighs> and then I realized that's how I used to probably communicate with the people who were taking care of us when I was growing mm -hmm. up. So when I went home, I went and I found my nanny and I apologized profusely mm. for being a brat yeah. when I was a kid. And like, when I tell you, I groveled and I apologized. And then when I used to hang out with my cousins and at my uncle's house and they would talk inappropriately to the folks who were taking care of the home, I would tell them that you can't talk to people like that. You know, so like, so like having that experience here mm. Mm. helped me think about how I was when I was growing up. And it also has helped me. Um, it has helped me in terms of how I interact with everyone in my life. Like, I don't care who you are. You will always be um, treated with respect and deference. And I have found in doing that, a lot of the, like, I have found that those people like pour into you, like when you least expect it. So like, like, you know, like I'm like connecting the dots of like experiences. Yeah. And, use of equity and all that stuff. But like, I remember when I was a first year practicing psychologist, like, you know, and I was working on my dissertation and typically school ends at three, you're out at five, but I treat everyone with respect. I treated the custodial staff with respect. I treated the security with respect. Mm. So they would allow me to stay at school until eight o'clock mm. so that I could work on my dissertation. And not only did they allow me to stay, they would bring me dinner. Like, oh, who does that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who does that? Or the fact that I would have my SOR officer implementing interventions for my kids. And, you know, like, mm. and so because we're a community, we're a family, like, yeah. like, you know, everyone should be seen, valued and heard in that space. And so my coming of age experience in the United States was understanding that your position in life does not determine who you are or what it is that you're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, like everyone, like, you know, we in this together, like, you know, like <laughs> when I was a faculty member. I'd walk down the hallway and mm. I'd say morning beautiful to everybody. Mm. <laughs> and people weren't used to that. And then yeah. after a while, people kept on saying good morning, beautiful to me. Mm. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, and then they're like, well, that's what you do. Mm. Or the fact that, you know, like, just, just like, like there, the other day I was just shopping and someone says, huh, do you remember me? And I'm like, no, he's like, I'm the pizza guy from the lunchroom. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> you always had the best smile. And he goes, he goes, I haven't seen you in a while. And I said, I'm no longer working there, but we connected. And then I'm like, permission to give you a hug. And I'm like, oh my God, you just made my, like, wow. day. how many of us actually like yeah. talk to the people, get to know the people who are making our lives a lot easier. Mm. And then if I did not have that, There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, 
reducing stereotypes, and increase validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is community. Coming of age experience in the U.S., I don't know if I would be that person. Mm-hmm. Wow. Curious just about your folks. So you you said, you know, banker and architect. Do they do they keep doing that work in the States or? No, oh, you know, that's not going to happen. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I figured. Um, yeah. My dad passed away nine years ago from cancer. Oh, sorry to hear that. And my dad was hella smart. God, that man was so smart. Mm. Um, and so he was an architect. He developed housing schemes on the island. Mm. When he came to this country, he could not use that those skills. So he worked as an EMT. He worked as a doorman. He mm. and later in his life, he worked for a sanitation company. So wow. he never used those skills that he had on the island. Um, my mom, on the other hand, has always been an amazing banker. I mm-hmm. wanted to when I grew up. When she came to this country, she worked as a secretary. Mm. No, well, first she cleaned people's houses. Then she worked as a secretary. And when I went in, when I got into college, she was working as a secretary secretary for J. Walter Thompson, which was an advertising firm in Manhattan. Mm. Um, and then she worked as a she worked at like um call doors i think like is like someone on the floor like doing stocks at one mm. point and then my mom decided to go back to school and she's a now a nurse mm. so her profession now is that of a nurse so she travels back and forth between here and jamaica she comes up to work for a couple months and then she goes back home and she lives there so her sort of like professional uh journey has you know got come full circle so to speak yeah yeah so they had to change which is what happened to many immigrant families and and i'm just kind of trying to go back to sort of why they moved in the first place then because you said you know they're coming up to you're talking about sort of remittance and coming up there to work and send money back Working as, you know, an EMT or and a secretary, were they still making more money doing that to send back than they were as a banker and an architect had they stayed? So I think, yes. Um, wow. They, well, no, let me back up mm. for a second. Uh, my mom is one of 13. Mm. And so, and God bless my mother. She has educated the majority of her siblings, their spouses, and their children. Mm. And she did that because she was really good with money management, number Mm. one. And number two, she also sacrificed a lot. So, like, my mom would extend lotion for days, right? Like, like, like put a whole, like, and she she just went without a lot. Mm. She also trained my sister and I to go without a lot. So my mom trained us to like always like have a plan, right? And so if I studied, then I got scholarships. So she didn't have to pay for me to go to school, right? So like I was able to take care of myself that way. So Mm. whatever money she had could be spent other places. Um, Because she was very good with money management, she was very good with investments, right? Mm. 
So when she came to the United States, the little that she made was still able to support her family because my mama will always say she never touched her principal. So mm. all of the things that she did was being generated from interest. So that's the oh, woman wow. that's like really smart. Yeah. So you know, could we have lived in a two-bedroom apartment in the United States? Yes. But if we did that, then she wouldn't have money to send home to bill out the principal to generate the interest that was taking care of her family, right? So mm. that's so like she's she's smart. That's yeah, what she super that's smart. What she, yeah. yeah, that's what she taught me. So so her being mm. here was always to build her principal mm. so that the interest would be able to take care of her family. So was she able to do that when she transitioned here? Yes. And, you know, she worked enough on the island. So, you know, like, I want to be my mom when I grow up. She's collecting pensions from two countries. <laughs> that that That's pretty smart, right? Yeah. So, you know, for her, she did the math, you know. And also, you know, by being here, you know, if we, her kids, did what we were supposed to do, we were going to get scholarships, which is what we did. So if we got scholarship, then that's education is taken care of. So whatever money she's bringing in, that's why she could educate her siblings on the mm. island because she wasn't putting money into educating her kids. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Um, yeah. Your mom's brilliant, right? That's. I want to be her when I grow up. Yeah. Yeah. Still. <laughs> so, right? just like, yeah. so she, that that's, and that's what she, she taught us. So, and even my mom says she's making more money now. Um, the later part of her life, because she's a nurse, right? That's right. that's definitely more than what she would make sure. the secretary or any of those yeah. things. And, you know, and but for her, it just means that there's more resources to take care of her family. So mm -hmm. she's always been taking care of her extended family. Yeah. And she's just putting more on the principal so she can get more interest. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll look at. Okay. So that's great story. So, <laughs> so, so, so what, what do you do? I mean, what do you, what do you do now? What, 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 what's, 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 what's your work focused on? Obviously it's, it's, it's school psych and, and, you know, improving, you know, the lives of kids and, and faculty, but uh, you know. So unfortunately, Ben, I don't know how to say no. So I do a lot. So I'm just <laughs> going to stick with one area. I sure. think I think you found me um, through my equity work that yeah. I do. And so, you know, um, and so I'll, I'll talk about that. Yeah. So being an immigrant is a minoritized identity. There, there are some lived experiences that comes, comes with that. Being a woman is a minoritized identity. Being a black woman is a minoritized yep. identity. It's a ripple threat, right? Or... <laughs> And so there, there are things that I've had to navigate, right? So in order to be successful, and mm. I realized that my success has been dependent on the individuals that have been, you know, in my life, like yeah. whether or not people are opening doors. And I also realized that my success has a lot to do with relationships, right? Like um, in the consulting world, we call that referent power which is likability power, you yeah. know, in, in the coaching world, it's called alliance building strategies, right? You know, like, how do you, how do you connect to others? How do you create community? How do you um, create an empathy bond so that you're yeah. in this, this mode together? 
And so my DEI journey in the um, in higher ed started when on my campus there are there were climate issues where our minoritized students were reporting that they didn't feel safe. Hmm. And I remembered at a faculty meeting, um, a question that was asked was, well, um, what do I need to know about those students um, to be able to support them? Which is, you know, like when, when people say those students, they assume that those students are like aliens, like oh, <laughs> we clearly need to know about those students. Mm. And so in that in that meeting, I stated, well, we're asking the wrong question. The questions that we need to ask is how do we understand ourselves and understand how our identities are interacting in these classes and whether or not they're creating um, a community or are they being a barrier for these particular kids, which is a very way of looking at it. Right. So mm-hmm. looking at them. I was like, let's turn the mirror this way. Mm-hmm. And um, and people would come to me and ask me, well, how do I talk to black students? And I'm like, how am I supposed to know? Like, <laughs> and the assumption there is that, well, you're black. You mm. should not black students, right? But you're assuming that black students are a homogeneous group. Like you are not um, recognizing the diversity within that community, yep. um, without the cultural language uh, or the immigrant diversity. And so yep. it's not a homogeneous community. Yep. And so again, it comes back to who am I? Do I understand who I am? Do I understand how my many different identities are playing out in this room? And so I had a dean at the time who really wanted to build capacity in her staff on being both responsive and proactive to creating a a climate that was um, inclusive for everyone, right? So shout out to my dean who was like, she's about to retire and she's like, I'm going to go out with a bang. Hmm. And so I said to my dean, you know, we should read Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. And so Hmm. that book was recommended by one of the schools that I was consulting with. And they're like, Stace, you know, this is a really good book. And so my dean bought all the faculty that book. (laughs) But so now we have a book. What are we going to do with the book? And so there were three faculty, uh, um, one from um, two from School of Education and one from our criminal justice department at Marist College. And they were like, you know, we should do a book study. And I was in Italy doing research. Mm. And they were like, Stace, you need to participate. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> be a black thing. And they were like, no, you need to participate. And I was like, well, if we don't participate, we're going to do it right. Because I'm a junior faculty and I need to write about this. But anyway, so then the idea was born. Okay, how do we build capacity within our largely white um, faculty mm. within the school? Right. So that that's the goal. How do we do it so that the faculty, there's buy-in with the faculty, so there's mm. ownership with the faculty? Mm. How do we do it so that the faculty sees this as an initiative within the school and not a minoritized initiative, right? So if it's a minoritized initiative, people kind of like put that to the burner. Oh, that's a Black issue, so we're not right. necessarily focused on this. So my role on the search committee was to really think strategically, organizationally, systems-wide about how can we create this community, encourage buy-in, and um, and really make this 
rooted in our core practices, right? Mm. And so our group was multidisciplinary. So, you know, we leaned on the expertise of our the professors who were coming from education, and we leaned on their expertise in terms of how to build a professional learning community that um, followed the sequence of sustained participation, right? Mm. As a systems consultant, my job was to really curate buy-in. And the way that I did that is that I, I utilized tenants from the consultee-centered literature, whereby which if we partnered with multiple professors, right, then it was a dyad that was facilitating the conversation. So it was never one person. Mm. So so if I go to a faculty member and I said, oh, I, I've been asked to do, I've been asked to facilitate this chapter can you do this chapter with me? Right. And they said, yes, we're doing it together. Mm. And we bounce off each other's experience, um, like training, and we deliver a product that is truly a, um, a collaborative effort of those two things. Right. And yeah. there, there's some nuances and some psychology. Sure. Even in the mm-hmm. Because, and so we do that. So there's this cross um, collaboration between whatever, And then we had to think about, my dean and our group were thinking about, if we were going to create this PLC, were we going to be strict with attendance or or were we going to allow fluidity, right? Mm. Like people come in and go as they please. And so we went with fluidity and, and then we decided to collect data on the process, right? And so the very first year we did it, first semester, it's literally like, oh, let's do this. And we got such good um, feedback from the faculty, right, that the dean was like, let's do this again with another book. So now Mm. we had created a framework, a structure, Mm. and written about this in other places. And then we replicated that framework and structure across multiple settings. We did this for about four years. And one of the things that we actually saw, and we published about this, is that the our DEI learning objectives increased in our syllabus that were non-DEI courses, right? So Mm. I know, isn't that typically, I know, typically DEI objectives would be like in only the diversity classes, but you were seeing it in research methods class, you were seeing it in assessment classes. What that did also was that the very few faculty of color that were in the department um, the school became less reliant on them to be responsive to all the DEI issues within the school, right? Mm. Because it was infused in the curriculum, students could no longer triangulate professors, basically stating that professor, like their minoritized professors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were the only one, because everyone was talking about it, right? And some students actually said, are all the classes are like this here at this college? And um, the chair said, no, but in this department, all the classes are like that. We typically have DEI objectives and blah, 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 blah. And so we also um, examined three classes that um, implemented several of the strategies that they learned in the PLC groups. Mm. And we actually showed that um, students were able to grow in their cultural competence as being a, a, a uh, being in these courses. So there, so what we were doing at the faculty level in building faculty um, competence 
or trickling down into the curriculum and then trickling down to the knowledge acquisition mm. students were, le- were learning, right? And so in that sense, you know, when, when I think about my DEI work is like, for me, it's how do I get buy-in? How do I bring in all these different voices? And how do I um, create a space where these voices um, can play nice, right? And when I say play nice, it's like a quotation because like- yeah, yeah bringing together these voices, and of course your folks can't see my visual, there's a lot of um, nuances that you have to sort of negotiate, right? Mm. But if you negotiate it together, when you see it in the classroom, you can do it. Mm-hmm. When you see it in the classroom, you're no longer scared. And a byproduct of that community is that it actually brought our school closer and sure. fostered um, collaboration, like research collaboration between scholars from other departments. So there was like this multidisciplinary collaborative venture. And so we took that model and then we pro- proposed it to the wider college campus, right? Because um, I wrote an article, oh God, I can't remember what article I wrote. Like, you know, how how do we create um, foot soldiers? Um, DE, we call them DEI foot soldiers, right? Mm. Like, and how do we plant these people across the universities? And so the idea behind my Diversity Leadership Institute was how can I empower you, Ben, where you are? working in campus for Mm. you, how can I empower you to develop and execute your DEI vision? Right. So Mm. that was, Mm. that is the goal of, or was the goal of the diversity learning Institute. And do I have, Oh, look at this. Mm. My water bottle. (laughs) Ah, cool. Yeah. My water bottle. All right. They can't see my water bottle, but anyway. um, So the goal was like, how do we, how do we, how do we create these literal soldiers, right? Or these um, DEI evangelists all over campus so Mm. that when stuff happens, they can respond to it. And like folks are not zeroing on that one person to share the entire load, right? Mm. And so we took that model that we use within our school where there was this cross-pollination between different groups. And um, we brought together like. all these different entities from across campus. We, we, they went through trainings where they increased their knowledge about certain things, but they also had to think about how did that knowledge, how would that influence their ideas of their um, DEI stuff that they wanted to do? Mm. This is my next paper that I need to write, right? And so, and so year one, year one, um, at the end of our year one class, a lot of the individuals who had gone through that process, Leadership Institute, had enhanced the DEI components on campus, right? So mm-hmm. they, like someone from admissions went through and they increased um, the diversity training for the folks who were doing the tour on campus, mm-hmm. um, making sure that students, um, if they have like um, um, families from minoritized backgrounds, um, how to connect with those families, where to show them where resources were on campus and all of those other mm. things. And so they revamped that area. Someone else went through and revamped the college partnerships with the local jail. And so like everyone, just like, I, cause my, our thing was, you don't have to have a title to be a, um, to have influence in this area on campus. Mm. And so after the first year and after all these things were happening on campus, the president was like, Stacy, this is good. I said, "Uh huh." <laughs> so he funded it for another year. So we had a second class went mm. through, 
that second class have started doing their own DEI stuff on campus, right? And so the idea then there is that we can all do this. Mm. And so if you provide a group where, you know, you provide a safe group where people are actually able to problem solve, reflect, and to think and to refine their ideas. Mm. And then remember earlier I talked about opening doors. And then um, I know what their ideas are. I have an idea of who the players are on campus. So then I'm able to open doors where they can access those resources, where they can implement their ideas. You know, that's the mm. connection. That's what my 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 teachers in high school did for me. Right. And that's what we we carried in that setting. Mm. But those are some of the things that I've done in terms of doing it at the classroom level, a school level and now at the college level. And I now consult um, with tertiary institutions about how it is that they can grow their own DEI leaders, how it is that they can grow their own leadership institutions to be able to do that work and sustain that work over time. Mm. That's my passion, right? <laughs> and, and all of that stuff really centers on understanding systems. Like I needed to understand like the vision of the college to be able to align this proposal with the vision of the college. Um, also be able to demonstrate that if you're able to do this, this is how it can impact student outcome. And so we we have that data already. And mm. um, and realizing that first, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and it's a team sport, right? And mm. how do you build your team so that you can execute this work? And I'm going to be quiet because I just gave you a whole lot. A lot of good stuff. Uh, first question is, is, is what's the timeline for all this? Like when were you, is, is this, is this sort of pre, well, I guess the question is this pre or post George Floyd stuff that's happening? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so when we first started in our school, mm. it was pre George Floyd because oh. our students were just not feeling safe. Right. Right. But because we had started it, when that stuff happened, our faculty, they were equipped to mm. have some of those discussions, right? Yeah. Because it already started, our faculty was equipped to deal with like the shooting in Pittsburgh or, or the the, yeah. the, um, the Jewish synagogue that was shot up. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Our faculty, they were primed to know how to create space, right? Mm. When all the police brutalities were happening, we had already had that space, mm. you know, and so faculty were equipped with the tools to be supportive of students. And so mm -hmm. that was pre pre that the leadership Institute came mm. during the black lives matter movement. So mm. if we realize the leadership, the Le black Lives matter movement also happened during COVID. Right. Yeah. So the, the work at the school level was pre black lives matter movement the the work at the college level was an uh, as a response to the college coming up with a program in response to BLM right which is mm. the summer 2020 mm. because at that time you know colleges were being asked what are you doing like how are you how are you growing your own DEI leaders how are you how are you making sure that campus is safe and and all of those things and the president at the time believed investing in the Leadership Institute would be a way to respond to some of the concerns that he was getting from stakeholders in the community. And then it just turned out that it turned out to be a great um, 
community building opportunity for the folks who were a part of that. Because the, there were faculty members and staff members who were in um, year who were in the first year of that class. Mm, okay, just because the reason I ask is, is I was reading a couple of your papers. Um, uh, the one on uh, creating inclusive communities. Yes. So that, that's like yeah. 2019. So was that sort of some of the beginning stuff? So, yeah. So is that one with, that's probably with Adrian Conyers. Is that with Adrian? Right. Oh, Ben, you're going to be so much better than I am with my papers. Cause yeah, no, it's all good. You write uh, them to move on. Um, was yeah, that... yeah. Uh, it was uh, with um, um, Hanson and Kinlaw. Oh, that is... Oh yes, 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 yes. That that was from that was from our PLC within the schools, mm-hmm. our professional learning communities within the schools. Right. So the the purpose, and I don't even, and the purpose of that was. So you know, you know how when papers get published, so like yeah. all the work happened like years before. Yeah, and yeah. Published yeah. at a time where it's hidden just right. So again, that was our our minoritized students not feeling safe. Right. During the process of the PLC, we also got feedback that our white male students weren't feeling safe, right? So mm. when we wrote the article, the premise of that article was how do we create space for all identities, right? Mm-hmm. Even the marginalized identities and the privileged identities. And then that article was a way in which we can do that. And the way that you do that is building capacity in your teaching force so that they're able to create these spaces for, for students, right? And so, you know, <laughs> this semester, one of my students said, you know, Dr. Williams, you're you're really good at, you know, checking in with us and allowing us to be who we are in this class, right? And so mm-hmm. when you create space for students, whoever those students are, mm-hmm. um, students will say stuff to you sometimes that just surprise you. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh. And so, you know, I've had students come out. I've had mm-hmm. share some heavy stuff in class. And I'm just like, I am not prepared for this conversation right now, but... Mm-hmm they feel safe enough to share. So me be really good at providing a space to facilitate what they've just shared. Right. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of that um, article is to demonstrate to other folks how just to do that. And it's not really that difficult. Yeah. Yeah. The reason, the only reason I ask is um, just to get get some timeline is is, um, I'm wondering Like I like I love the sort of the the dyad piece and, and kind of how that all you know you know sort of spilled over and and, and created this sort of community approach because you talk about sort of there's only being a few you know faculty of color um, and um, and 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 so kind of you know setting that piece up because and I guess what I'm wondering about is sort of how. I know you kind of started in the schools and worked your way up to kind of higher education, but I'm wondering how it kind of is trickling back again, because the the other piece that is you've written about and a lot of folks have written about is, is this idea that, that these, these graduate programs are, you know, have come a long way in terms of, um, you know, um, 
becoming safer spaces for you know students of color. But once they leave the programs and go into the schools, it starts all over again because now once again they're the only black professional possibly in that in that setting. And mm -hmm. everything you said before that you were trying to avoid with this project happens in in the school setting. And there's they're 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 responsible for all the DEI. It's all minority sort of initiated projects and and basically essentially they're they're in charge of putting mm -hmm. in the systems to protect themselves um, <laughs> um nice way of and, saying it yeah and so it, it is it, are, are you involved in work there to sort of you know help them when they get out no i mean the informally right yeah. so if if someone reaches out to me um for counsel and then yeah. I might help them navigate how they might identify their community. Right. You know, in different research circles, it talks about identifying your affinity group or sister yeah. circle to be able to do this work. Yeah. And how do you how do you build this from the grass up? So when I yeah. present at conferences, I talk about how you can take our model and plant it wherever it is that you are so that you're not the only one. Because right. the idea is that if you if you're the only one, you're gonna burn out. And you cannot do this work alone. Mm. You're going to have to align yourself with individuals who are willing to leverage their position and their privilege mm. to advance this work, right? Mm. And what we haven't talked about is that in the United States, there is the pendulum is swinging. There's this backlash against like um, anti-equity work. You know, like yeah. in some states, you can't say diversity, equity, right. or inclusion. It's considered bad bad word, right? And in in many of those places, people are still trying to be supportive of creating environments mm. that are um, supportive of all people, right? And yeah. it, it's it's tricky when you know you have in some states where you know books are being banned or you can't say you know. So so I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna talk about the elephant in the room. Like sure. this is very challenging. Um, period, um, to be able to do this work. But mm -hmm. when I go to schools, right, I, and I, I, I enter from a position of empathy. Mm -hmm. I enter from a position of, do you like being seen? Do you see yourself represented? Represented? Um, you know, um, how do you think your students feel when they don't see themselves like um, um, in your curriculum? Like, what mm -hmm. would that you and like what would that actually look like and you know and what would it mean for them to be seen and heard and so typically when I consult you know I don't start off with curriculum I just start off with how are you getting to know your students and I don't mm. know if you remember I don't know if you're a camp person but I remember like going to camp and playing those trust games right mm -hmm. and I call that the process piece where you're just getting to know people like mm. how are you getting to know the kids who are in front of you that's where, let, let's not use the bad word. That's where equity starts, right? Mm. Because if you begin to know the kids who are in front of you, then you're you're beginning to create, um, you're beginning to bond the kids in your classroom and they're going to see each other as a community. And when yeah. they see each other as a community, they're going to protect each other. That's what yeah. normally happens. Yeah. And so say to people, you know, like creating an inclusive community, it's about getting to know who's in your class. Mm. And so- you know, like when I first started teaching, someone said to me, Dr. Williams, you're so much nicer when you're not in the class and when you're in the class. And I'm mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? But I mm -hmm. get it. 
In a British educational system, you go to class to teach and learn. It's not for us to kiki kaka and be happy with each other. That's my mm. lived experience. Americans love play in class. Mm. When I was growing up, that was not a thing, right? However, I realized that if I carve out five to 10 minutes out of a class period to create bonding exercises with my students, mm. I will never have behavior problems or attrition problems or any of those problems. And I don't. My kids show up to class. They would tend to show up to class early because they want to engage in the connection activity. Mm. When I was being um, observed for tenure, in the back of my head, like I was sick. My students were like, Dr. Williams, we got this. They taught my class. Like in the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, they're going to think, I don't know. And the person wrote in my evaluation, oh, this is such a, a strong community. Um, you know, students are supporting mm. each other. And I was like, that is God who sent that person to evaluate. Because <laughs> they come and be like, she did not teach, right? But right. the fact that my students recognized I was not feeling well and got up and did what they needed to do. Like, Dr. Williams, I, that's a community. And mm -hmm. the thing with the community piece, right, is I will say to students, I'm going to model connection activities. but I'm going to ask you to pair up with someone that you don't know mm. and, and, and take a week and you're leading out in connection activity for that week. Mm. I had male students leading out in yoga, like, like <laughs> who does that? Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but it created, but, but once you do that, Ben, right. So that's the mm. inclusive piece. Once you do that, any of these issues that are happening in the world around us that everybody else is afraid to talk about automatically comes up in that space, right? Mm. But you'll say to a student, how are you today? That's it. And all of a sudden they dump, right? Because they feel safe. Mm. My job as a teacher in that moment, I scan the room, how are the, how are the students? I see the students are open to having this discussion. I have the discussion. We have a moment of silence. Mm. Sometimes there isn't a solution. They just needed to share. Mm. And then sometimes I'll say, you know, I really don't know what to say in this moment, but permission to give you a hug and they'll, they'll receive the hug. And then later on, I'll get an email that states, mm. you know, Dr. Williams, you were the only professor that created a space for us to have that conversation. Now, what I say to people all the time is they always want to have that conversation. They either want to have that conversation when something big happens, right? Mm -hmm. But if you haven't prepared your class, you're not going to be able to have that conversation. And the way that you prepare that class, any class, is being intentional with how you connect with your students at the very beginning. Because mm. if, if you've connected, if you've created opportunities for bonding, when the world is falling out around us, they will bring those questions up because they consider this a safe place. If the world is falling and it's not a safe place and you're trying to have that conversation, they're going to be like, why are you in my business? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like you've never cared before. And yeah. so when, when I talk about really supporting kids, I, yes, the curriculum is important, but that's the other piece. The, the yeah. first thing that, you know, it's connection. What are you doing to understand the kids who are in your class? What are you doing to make sure that they're supported in whatever goals that they have? Right. Mm. And is it hard to do? Yes. Is it easy to do? Yes. If you say to yourself, I'm going to dedicate five to 10 minutes. What are you doing? What are you reading? 
you know, like, you know, my boys, my boys be like, Ooh, Dr. Williams, I have a tattoo. I said, does your parents know? <laughs> You're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Lord have mercy. You know, but, but you become a family, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what, that's what creating these spaces mean for me. How do I create that family feeling in my class? So they, they don't feel compelled to show up. They just mm. want to show up because it's a safe place for them. Yeah. And then if you're doing that, are you, are, are you, are you finding that then your students are going and trying to do the same thing when they get into schools? I love it when they email me and they tell me what they're doing. Yes. And then I'm like, they're like, Dr. Williams, this is what I learned in their class. And typically they're not telling me about the content that they've learned. They're telling me about some process stuff that I did that they have mm. learned and they're now doing in their class. Mm. So, and I'm always grateful for that. Right. Mm. Um, and they, they will often say that I teach them a lot more than content because I model for them about how to connect with their students. Yeah. That's powerful. Because, I mean, this community model just sounds perfect for, you know, the kind of work you're doing as because uh, you're the you're the you direct the multi-tier systems of support for the state. And so this, you know, this fits kind of right into that whole kind of PBIS model and and and, you know, kind of that tier one kind of, you know, um, build community, build relationships, uh, build rapport. Um, yeah. you know, embed this, these sort of DEI sort of, you know, um, I don't know if they call them the, the same thing in, in like elementary school or high school, but, you know, in, into the, into the coursework, you know, as part of, you know, as part of, you know, what you're doing and, uh, and, and making it sort of, you know, everybody's business. Yeah. Like, so coaching and consulting, it's all. You know, if you think about implementation science, we're dealing with humans, right? Yeah. And so it's all relationship building. And so my team's my team's job and I's job is how do we enter a school and to support a school in implementing an initiative mm. so that that initiative isn't seen as a burden, sorry, but is seen as a support, right? Mm. That's all we do. And so we have to be very careful of saying, this is what you need to do. Like when we tell people that this is what you need to do, our defenses go up. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, how do, so my team has to understand the landscape. They have to understand the issues and then they have to then engage in what I call bridging activities to bring these two people together. Right. And so even when we talk about implementing a PBIS curriculum or imp implementing an MTSS curriculum, equity is at the forefront of that lens. And so mm. if we're talking to schools about, say, a literacy curriculum, is your literacy curriculum inclusive for all of your students? If we're mm. looking at your outcome data, how are your minoritized students doing? How are your language minority students doing? Mm -hmm. Are there pieces of that curriculum that are aligned with, say, um, how individuals like learn a second language? And mm. so it's it's just talking to people, right? So yeah you think about, even if you think about um, DEI through a multi-tiered lens, and I know you've interviewed Celeste Malone, Dr. Malone, yeah. and she, she writes in this area. If we think about DEI, what are we doing at tier one for all kids, right? That, that's that, you know, 
And for those kids who are struggling, and if they are struggling due to toxic stress or racial trauma, you know, do we have an affinity group at tier two that's going to be supportive of those students? Mm. And if affinity group is not working, do we have a therapist at tier three who is able to um, integrate um, cultural norms and practices mm. and her therapy that she's providing kids? That's thinking about DEI through a tiered lens, right? Yeah, I love that. If you think about, if we think like what, what's currently happening, we, we have a war going on, right? And there are yeah. people on two sides. And you may be in a school community that you have these two identities in the school community, right? Yeah. And so, you know, how are we creating space for everyone at tier one? But then for tier two, like, are we going to borrow from restorative practices to bring these communities together to be able to have a conversation? That would probably be a tier two um, strategy. And then yeah. a tier two strategy might be, we might need to go out there and get community folks to come in to mm -hmm. help to facilitate some discussions, right? So it's a way for systems to think about mm. how allocating um, support. So that's what MTSS is. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talk to people, we say anything that you do could be perceived through this tiered systems of support. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that, that's my official job, Ben. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. My official job. Super cool. Wow, that's a good, good, great job. Um, I'm grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are, what are kind of some of the, uh, the projects you're working on right now? What am I working on? I don't know. Yeah. Actually, this is okay. I'm working on saying no in 2024. Nice. <laughs> so I'm currently, I'm currently, my colleagues and I are putting together a symposium for the national association of school psychology conference yep. how we could leverage our training as school psychologists and and non-school psych related fields so you know i'm at i'm at the state level doing um policy implementation my other colleagues run a neuropsychology center and the other one is a research scientist in a hospital mm. so our our role is to help you know, school psychologists really think of their training outside of a school psychology lens. Like you can do a lot more with this training than you mm. can ever imagine. So that's a symposium that I'm working on. Mm. Like what I talked to you a while ago about, um, I'm working on um, delivering a training on helping folks grow their own leadership institute and what that actually looks mm. like and the scope and sequence for that. I also in my spare time, I do work on um, radical and restorative self-care practices, especially for DEI consultants, right? You mm. know, and how do we align our self-care practices with our core values so that they're sustainable? So I do training in that area. I just got back from St. Martin. Um, wow. I did that with some of the teachers on the island. So mm. that was exciting. Um, and then I am... I'm finishing up an article on um, community-based learning practices in tertiary classrooms, um, basically um, connecting like my school psych students with um, psychologists in the area and developing responsive PLCs for those folks. So, I mean, Whoa. this is one of the reasons why I laugh that <laughs> I need to just say no. Um, yeah. 
So those are like my side projects, but my really big one is just helping my team support the schools across the state and Mm. MTSS and Mm -hmm. um, working with the state on their policies for that. So that takes up a lot of brain power. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I have left over, I tend to allocate to these other things that I'm doing. Yeah. Okay, good. Saying no is good. Um, one last question. Um, uh, I know the the uh, second annual uh, uh, Black School Psych Summit's coming up. Oh, people uh, can't see me dancing while you say that. Yeah, yes. no. Well, this is this is why eventually I'm I'm trying to get something maybe like a Patreon thing or something so folks can see the videos and stuff. So I, I appreciate all all the hints you've been laying today for things folks are missing, whether it be your hand gestures or your or your books or or the pictures on the wall or whatever. You want to see those? Join oh. something that I'll create one day. Uh, oh, one day. Yeah, I, I didn't have all makeup for this talk. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not this one. Maybe not this one. And <laughs> I, I will reach out to all my previous guests and ask them if they're okay with the video. Um, okay. And, uh, but yeah, we got the the Black School Sex Summit coming up in April. Um, uh, will, will you be attending and and or, or participating? So this year I'm not participating. I was mm. honored to participate last year. Mm, mm. So this year I'm going as a registrant and attendee, nice. and I'm just going to soak up all the black professional magic. Yeah. Last year was phenomenal. I think you're going to be interviewing one of my colleagues, um, uh, Carlita Joseph, at yep. some and she is the CFO for um, that organization, along yep. with her amazing colleagues. And so, you know, my first year was going to support her mm. and just have an amazing time. You know, like right. going to that conference was like family. It was a soul release. Mm. Um, and it was just great. It was great to participate. And I'm hoping to have another soul release as an attendee. Yeah. I will say one of my favorite memories from that conference was I was just sitting down minding my business. Hmm. This lady who the day before I went to hug her thinking that she was someone that I knew, but she wasn't. Then I uh, apologized for right, right. getting her space. She sat down with me and some of my colleagues. And then she said she was from Canada hmm. and she decided to come to that conference because of what happened to Celeste and her friends in Denver. So I was right. in a room that happened in Denver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she hadn't been to NASP in a very long time. So she decided to come to the Black Psych Summit. Mm. And she said, the one thing that would make this conference the best ever, the mm. icing on the cake, was to meet Celeste Malone. Mm. I said, I got you, boo. Because um Peter, Peter, um, Peter, oh my god, Peter, Peter, I'm blanking on Peter's name. Why am I bl- Peter is the president-elect for the National Association of School Psychology. Okay, Conference. yeah, yeah. Peter was sitting with me at that time. I was TSP president. So we said to her, we got you. And and, and Peter like text Celeste, and she was like, Oh my God. And she's and then someone goes, well, do you know who you're sitting with? And she's like, no. And they're like, you know, like Stacy's going to do the keynote. And she's like, oh, and I said, don't worry. During my keynote, 
I will make sure I create space for you to meet Celeste. And she could not believe it. So wow. after my keynote, I said, Celeste, come on up here, girl. Come on up here. So Celeste came up and I was like, there is someone who just wants to meet you. And I said, you come on up, meet Celeste. And then I'm like, where's your camera? We need to take a picture. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> picture and then afterwards she and celeste connected but then afterwards she was like oh my god thank you so much and i said oh that's what the summit's about it's all about connection. yeah 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 and you got a you got a you got a big keynote this year with dr bryant yes that's that's huge we're excited yeah. i know that yeah. and her team are excited yes yeah yeah awesome yeah we got so are you coming oh God, I wish. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I, I don't, I don't really, I, I, I am humbled and honored to be able to do this podcast and talk to so many cool people like you, but this is really the only forum I have to be able to actually see, you know, you folks, I, yeah, there's definitely, there's just, there's just no way um, for me to get to these kinds of things. Um, yeah. Have you seen the pictures online? I have. Yeah. They've been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did get the opportunity um, last year to go to the Black Behavior Analyst Conference, um, which um, is, you know, uh, which is similar, obviously, in, in a lot of ways, um, as far as the community and connection. And it was it was just the, I can't say enough, it, it was the best conference I've ever been to for anything, regardless of what my career was in my entire life. Um, and I... The third secret word is gatekeeping. I, I just don't even see any value in attending any other conferences in behavior analysis ever again. Um, uh, you know, certainly, uh, I think you know if there were, if there were conferences specific to maybe some other affinity groups, I'd, I'd be in. But there, I, there, are, there aren't any right now. I'd love to see that. Uh, I really liked. I really like to go to the. I'd love to go to the summit. Obviously, it, it's it's something. It, it's it's on my list of maybe one day it'll happen um if, if I, you know in some way and another one that i'd really like to go to is the society of indian psychologists um uh, the native american indian psychologists uh, conference that happens every summer uh, that's another one i'd i'd, I'd, I'd love to be where, at where is that where oh it probably uh, all over the place no i don't think so i, I think I, I feel like it's in the same spot um um every or well, maybe not every year but um, uh, this is me uh, googling it uh, here and, and possibly editing out this section. But um, uh, let's see, where is it here? Uh, so it was, it was. Uh, it doesn't doesn't really say. It just says it just says they're having one. But yeah, anyway, it sounded like it was pretty amazing because uh, I was talking to the president of that organization, Dr. Bays, and he was telling me. Um, because uh, as I'm sure, you know, you know, uh, native, native folks in the field, you know, are even less represented than, you know, sort of black folks, black folks got around another four-ish percent mark. And, 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 uh, I think native Americans are, you know, somewhere around the one or one or below kind of percentage mark. And I think there's something like, uh, we'll just sort of compare it to sort of black the black psych the, the association of black psychologists network and, and 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 evan evan august was telling me there's maybe there's like two or three thousand maybe psychologists psychologists sort of in that group you know which is not a lot um uh in the society for indian psychologists there are 200 members um and anyway he was telling me at, at their conference this year there were 450 attendees the rest of them were students so 
um, really, really boding well. And, and it sounds like the Black Schools Like Summit was similar. There was just so there many was, students there. It was. There were there were more students than there were practitioners. Yeah. And so for us, for you know, I've, I've been doing this for over 20 years. So yeah. when I started, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. So for yeah. us, we're just like, oh, my God, the future is bright. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, one of the things that stood out for the Black Psych Summit was the amount of black males that were represented. So we were we're seeing for the first time a critical mass in our field, and that's yeah. just amazing. So Ty Collins and Camonte um, is doing research in this area. So yep. it's just phenomenal. And um, and and I think and I think why a lot of people may have just enjoy like we go to nasp but we're sprinkled right mm-hmm. in the space we were we were all there we were all there in our brilliance there it 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 was just a different experience and even peter who showed up he was just like this is amazing how yeah. we do something like this at the national level and so you know i actually found a keynote speaker for my conference at the black psych summit there there's a woman that i was trolling online i shouldn't say mm-hmm. trolling i was just I was just yeah. amazed by her yeah, yeah. and Nicole and Nicole Holland Sims, and she's speaking this year. And I went to her presentation and yeah. I was like, I want her. But then everybody wanted her. Like everybody yes. else, I couldn't get to her. Yeah. And then I saw her standing alone in her cocktail dress. Nice. And I made a beeline for her. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I'm your biggest fan, totally fangirling. Mm. And Nicole goes, I follow you on Twitter. And I'm like, I follow you on Twitter, which is now X. And I was like, uh-huh. oh my God, I love your work. And she's like, I love your work. And I'm like, great. We're both fans of each other. And then I said, can you do a keynote for me? <laughs> and I said, could you open up your phone? Yeah. Like I'm available. And I said, thank you, black Jesus. And so, but <laughs> otherwise I have no idea when I've been able to cross path with Nicole mm. and I'm- I locked her down when I did because her schedule is just beyond crazy these days. Yeah. So um that's the power of these conferences, right? Yeah. You know, being able to connect uh, on a more intimate level with folks who look like you. Yeah. Nicole's amazing. I had her on the podcast too. Um, yeah, she's so awesome. Uh, you be yeah, talking to all my friends. <laughs> yeah, well, you got co- you got cool friends. Um, you know, and, and your point about the black men, you know, is, is something similar that we saw at, in, in, at the, the Black Behavior Analyst Conference. And I, I interviewed a, there's a guy, Jerron uh, Trotman, and he, he last year he started uh, Black Men in Behavior Analysis, uh, sort mm-hmm. of a, a sort of a, as a chapter of black of the Black uh, Behavior Analyst Organization. Um, uh, and he was telling me about how he went to the first black uh, the first uh, Bob, baba baba for sure the first baba conference um um uh, live which i think so i think they had, they had a couple online ones and then the, the live one or maybe one and the live one was year before last this like 2022 anyway um he and he told me about walking into that room and sort of and how there were there was five other black men and they all kind of walked into that room not expecting to see another one um, and all seeing each other for the first time and going, there's another one of us in this field sort of thing. Um, and there was like five of them there. And then last year, when, or this year, when I was at the conference, that number jumped to like 30 um, at the conference. And uh, yeah, it was cool. I got to, I, I went, I went down, it was cool. I, it was uh, just a side story. I, I went down because they invited me down to, to document it. 
Um, and, uh, and, uh, so I was able to do some fundraising to kind of go and whatnot and, uh, ended up, uh, had this cool experience where all the, all the black male behavior analysts sort of, um, the day before the conference started all met at a restaurant. Um, and so many of them just seeing each other for the first time ever seeing there's a couple of old school black behavior analysts that, you know, that they all, they've all kind of looked up to that came and they're all meeting them these guys for the first time. So I got to set up microphones all in the restaurant and all over it and just sit there and, and, and listen to these guys just vibing off of each other. And it was just so cool. So cool to see and, and so cool to hear. And so, yeah, it's neat. Uh, the, the, that, you know, it's neat all the, the all the things that kind of happen at these conferences. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're very grateful for folks who create these spaces. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. I'm grateful for you finding me too and giving me this opportunity to share my story. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad you came on. This was super cool. Thanks Thank for doing it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. We'll see you I next cut time. you off. I didn't know if you were going to say something no, else. I was just going to say, see you next time. This was great. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> All right. All right.